0: Hello, welcome to another episode of Science Shambles. Helen Chersky, once again, in the host chair. This week, Robin is back from his world tour with Professor Brian Cox, but uh, these episodes were recorded while he wasn't back, and that's why Helen is here. But as proof of Robin being back, he is doing a run of Chaos of Delight at the Soho Theatre this week, if you're listening to this on release day, July 8th through to July thirteen tickets available for that are from robin's site robinince.com or the soho theater website helen has got a couple of events coming up at the science museum as well so uh check her out on twitter for details of those remember you can support everything we do at cosmic shambles by going to patreon.com slash book shambles and pledging as little as a dollar a month and you'll get extended episodes of Book Shambles which is back this week and lots of other offers including our free tickets to lots of our events go out to our Patreon supporters as well. So if you can spare a dollar a month and like what we do, head over there. Now on to this week's show with our guests, uh, Dr Michelle Dickinson who you might better know as Nano Girl who's over in the UK at the moment promoting uh, the UK launch of her kitchen science cookbook regular cosmic shambles event goers and uh, listeners or uh, watchers of um audience that's the word i'm looking for i should just said that that would have been easier uh regular members of the cosmic shambles audience uh will know michelle from the kitchen science video series she did with jenny smith on the network in the summer of last year she's been on book shambles and science shambles before was part of our cosmic shambles live tour of new zealand And our other guest is Dr. Suze Kundu, who you may have seen at one of our nine lessons shows or as part of the Cosmic Superheroes Photography Exhibition. Nanoscientists both, and here they are with Helen.
1: Okay, we've got three (laughs) thumbs up from behind the magic window there. Uh, Welcome to Science Shambles. I'm Helen Cheresky, still standing in for Robin Inns, who is still swanning around the world with Brian Cox on their Universal tour. Um... And so, yes, so this week I have with me in the studio Michelle Dickinson and Susie Kundu who are both in their ways, exp- well they're both nano girls. I was going to say, but you actually called nano girl Michelle, and then Susie
2: does, yeah. you, you sort of had similar...
3: I think I'm more of a material girl, I think okay. I stole that from Madonna. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
2: That's good. I feel like we're tying into your Manchester conversation about building superhero names for our, you know, for us. Oh, I have Manchester Sorry. accent out in that case. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we have our superhero names and we use that for what we do. As both material scientists and nanotechnologists and having known each other for years, it's quite nice to all be in the room. Yes, it really is. It's and Michelle, you're visiting for a few weeks from New Zealand. I am. Yes. Hello. <laughs> Your weather's rubbish. Sorry, Last people. time we were in
1: the same room, it was on the other side of the world, so it's nice to be here. Um, so there's lots of stuff to talk about. Let's maybe just talk, um, let's start a little bit with some of the nano stuff, just to just because that is one of the things... That you two have in common, and what are the big sort of stories? I mean, nanotechnology is one of those because it was a word which it, it's gone through phases, hasn't it? It was kind of exciting because it was new, and then it was people were trying to say it was bad thing and grey goo, and now no one—it's turned into so many different technologies. I think that no one knows what to do with it. What's what's the sort of evolution of nano things? Which of you wants?
3: Effectively, nanotechnology has been around for millions of years. We see it in nature. And in fact, a lot of research that goes on around nanotechnology is inspired heavily by nature. It's people trying to catch up with what nature's been doing for for millions of years. So particularly, at least in my area of research, I was looking at artificial photosynthesis. So I was using nanomaterials to try and capture sunlight energy and use that to split water to make hydrogen, to use as a, a nice cheap clean fuel and I think nanotechnology itself because it has been around for ages it's great but we are trying to catch up but the fact that we gave it a label or at least you know Richard Feynman I think back in the day started tiny machines there's plenty of room at the bottom um, it's a very yes, famous essay wasn't yeah, it called plenty yeah which room. Is which wonderful. I highly recommend you can yeah. find it online I highly recommended absolutely and it was written in the
1: 50s was it it was uh, 60s, it was very 60s prescient. I think yes yeah. yeah
3: and it it kind of Opened up this new world of investigation. And I think it was Eric Drexler beyond that that then started to really push for nanotech research and gave it this name. And so it sounds awfully futuristic. And of course, we went through the bad PR phase where people started to realize that because of the scales that we're looking at, you can get this interaction of these materials with things like DNA. They can permeate through, you know, a nucleus wall of a cell and start to mess around with things. And so, of course, that's a problem. But, you know, thankfully, we've also had a rise of ethics and things as well. So the research that that people are doing... It's sort of future-facing and a lot of nanotech is facing a lot of the big global challenges that we've got, like energy and clean water and antimicrobial resistance. But actually what I really love is that, for, at least for me, it feels like we're sort of looking back to nature in a lot of what we're trying to do here and trying to mimic that in a really efficient way on the macro scale. So Michelle, sure
1: where do we find nanotechnology now? Like where it's Now it's, it's, it's maybe some of it leaving the lab now. What What's it doing?
3: It's, it's everywhere
2: and the great thing <laughs> about that and the terrible thing about that is that it's invisible to the naked eye and so if you look at the width of your hair your hair is about 100,000 nanometers wide so we're talking about things that you can't see and that's where the fear I think has come from is all of this invisible technology um, and we find it everywhere so for example you'll have it if you have self-cleaning windows if you have a high rise you know there's titanium dioxide nanofilms on there to help the sun and the rain you know mean that your windscreen your um, window cleaners don't need to climb too high You'll find it in your sunscreen olden days remember those days when you put sunscreen on and your face went white well all they did was take uh, the particles titanium dioxide again and zinc um, oxide they make them smaller so you can't see them so it doesn't make your face look white it'll be in your smartphones all your devices as we know have got much smarter and much smaller and that's because of nanotech so it's it's in all sorts of things and it's also fascinating from a size so I'm a nano breaker of things I'm a nano mechanical engineer so people make these tiny things and I go and break them <laughs> um, because the reason why things like carbon fiber are so strong and have these great properties is everything breaks at its weakest point. And so, if you make things really tiny with only a few atoms, they might not have a weak point. They might be atomically almost perfect. And so, that's where they get their strength from. And it's really interesting to make things really lightweight and strong, especially in a world where. We're trying to be more efficient around transport. And if you look at how planes have totally been redesigned recently, um, that's all because of carbon fibre and nanotech. So it literally is everywhere. So let's talk about this issue of trust then, because I think one of the things about this,
1: you know, and it came along with the sort of grey goo and, and all of that. And the problem is that regulations, you know, if, if, someone, drives, if someone speeds on the motorway, everyone's got a kind of feeling in their head for how fast 70 miles an hour is that is definitely someone's doing 100 right we can all look and glare at them and if you're a police person with a speed gun you can go after them right so so speeding for example is something where it we've got an intuitive feel for what's right and what's wrong but there is so much trust involved in the world of nanotech like how do we how do we, how how do scientists and engineers earn that trust what do we do because you know like you said we can't see it can't tell what maybe it's so small they barely even put it in the
2: ingredients list how how do we earn that trust oh and it is in your ingredients so if your milk looks white it's because there's nanoparticles of titanium dioxide making Mm -hmm. your milk white so it literally is in all our foods and we don't always have to label them so different countries have different regulations around that in new zealand now you have to label nano in brackets next to any cosmetic that's got nanoparticles in it but that is Um, not all over the world. Mm -hmm. And in Asia, for example, they celebrate nanoparticles in their cosmetics. It's like on the front being like, and this has added nanotechnology. And so I think the regulations are really interesting because people's perception is different in different countries. Um, And I think we haven't We've actually not worked hard enough, I think, at the beginning of nanotech. And since then, there's been a whole industry saying, and academia and saying, actually, we probably need to do a little bit more. But it's really challenging, too, because they are so tiny. Like, how do you know where they are? How do you do biopsies? Where would you look? How are you measuring individual particles? It's very difficult. So I think it's still a challenging space.
3: Yeah, I think at this stage of research and having, I guess, learnt about things that we didn't know about, things like asbestos, particles that were actually causing a lot of problems, we didn't realise that things at that tiny scale could cause damage. And so... As researchers, you learn from it. So you put all of these safety things within even your proposals before you've even done the research, you're having to showcase your, your commitment, your responsibility to actually making sure that the research you're doing won't harm the researchers doing it, won't potentially then harm the people who will use this application. And of course, we'll go through iterations of, of testing and things. But I think one thing that scientists and researchers generally need to do actually is sometimes be a bit more transparent and a bit louder about these things that we're putting in place to to remind people that we do things to help <laughs> not to not to harm anybody, research is done ultimately to help people. And I think maybe being a bit more open about the, the methods that we put in place and the, the safety precautions that we put in place to make sure that that remains the case. We need to shout about that a bit more, I think.
1: And how does it work? So at the moment, you know, I'm an ocean person and there's the the... Issue, the, the, the questions about microplastics, not just in the ocean, but in the air, in the soil, all these places, suddenly have come to the fore. And micro is big, it falls outside the definition of um, nanoparticles. However, um, we are there is now evidence, I think, starting to be evidence of of these tiny particles that are inside all of us actually doing some harm because there's a difference between them being there and then doing something and so has that worry and people gone oh what do you mean that you mean i'm breathing in microplastics and I'm like yep they're all there uh, so how is that affecting the world of nanotechnology yet is there a kind of trickle down effect that or are you just is it so separate that
2: you're not affected by it i think and, and microplastics is really interesting i think when we talk about nanotechnology people say, oh nanotech, it's all bad. And actually we have to remember it's just a size scale. And what's more important is the material that we're talking about. So the reason why microplastics are such a challenge is because they have a charged surface. Is because we know that toxins are trapped in the ocean. Is because they're basically big sponges for terrible things. Um, and so when we talk about nano or microparticles, we have to also talk about the material that's involved. So you've got inert materials like gold and like silver that we're using. Most people for-
1: wouldn't complain about having easy <laughs> gold. I think you you
2: can do that in posh
1: cafes and posh cocktail bars. <laughs> right. and your and so
2: it's in your socks though. Nanoparticles of silver are yeah. in your socks. They're antimicrobial socks. Apparently they don't smell. They're in a lot of active wear now. And so this real crossover between the research and being in your commercial products to stop you stinking while you are sweating <laughs> um, is really interesting because people aren't afraid of their socks. But then we talk about, oh, nano this. Another. There is a
1: disaster movie in that though somewhere. <laughs> I mean, it's coming, isn't it? <laughs> when the socks come
2: alive.
3: The attack of the Nano sucks. But, yeah. you
2: know, people talk about the size and I don't think it's the size that actually is the challenge. The size gives us amazing properties. Mm-hmm. It's the material that's the issue. About.
3: But
1: it's the issue with the size, though, that you feel that they can get through things. Because we have we spend a lot of... Our world is basically made of barriers. Our cells are little barriers. They're keeping the inside of the cell in and the outside of the cell out. Our buildings are barriers, keeping the weather mm-hmm. out and us in. So we like to know where the boundaries are. And and I, I feel part of the, the sort of issue with these technologies is that... It feels like they're sneaky little things that are going to sneak into corners
3: and that may or may not yeah. be true. Well, I mean, they are and that's the risk. And I suppose that's what people have been worried about for some time. The fact that on the scale that we're looking at, we're looking at the, the not quite atomic, but molecular scale, which is the same scale that your cell walls are made of. And so when they start to then you know permeate through them quite happily and they start to mix about and start to alter DNA, of course, that is going to be a problem. Um but i think we do need to remember that a lot of the work that we're doing it's not just kind of free floating nanoparticles in the air a lot of these are embedded in composite materials and things they are used appropriately so that these things don't happen so to the best of our ability they are contained in a safe way so that you don't then get accidental shards of or tiny particles of anything bracing off brushing off and you know it's it is a lot safer but again when you get to the application stage of that research, all of this is taken into account because we're always learning. So what's, let's, have, let's have a bit of a
1: hooray for the nanoparticles. So I think one, mm-hmm. the thing, one of the difficulties with this is that it's very hard to get to specifics. Like you say, because they're sort of either very general or they're everywhere. Like, well, where exactly are they? So apart from the socks, is there an <laughs> example either of you, you know, I want nano socks. I'm in for that. Um, uh, is there an example that, that each of you could give where you nanotechnology has made something possible a specific way in a specific place. It made something possible that was not possible before or did it much better. Are there there simple examples like that or is it... Oh, well, let's
2: start with your smartphone. Everybody has a smartphone, right? You probably think that it works by magic. That's what most people <laughs> think, think. But when you actually touch the screen on the glass, you might think, oh, I'm touching glass, and that's really cool. You're not. You're touching nanowires, and they're invisible, and you can't see them, and they're in the glass, and they're picking up. So just basically. describe
1: that structure. Describe so what you're touching.
2: Inside the glass of your touch screen device is basically a grid of beautifully arranged nanowires and they are um, putting out a constant current and so that current stays the same until you touch it because you're made of atoms which have electrons and electricity is just a flow of electrons and so as you touch them, and this is why your phone doesn't work when you've got gloves on, um, you're basically putting a new charge there and, and the grid picks up that there's a new charge at this specific point and so that's how you know you're touching it. And so this is
1: like a sort of, you know, I mean I'm a badminton player so I think in terms of badminton just nets like that. but that kind of <laughs> just grid like that, of a lines grid. Going yeah, and that's
2: why your phone battery kills your phone because it's constantly powering your screen and putting out this constant charge. So you couldn't have your smartphone work in the way that it does and it has to work in that way because touchscreens you couldn't have it work on pressure because when you put it in your pocket it would go off. You couldn't have it work on temperature because we know that with our different genders actually we have a big variance of how cold or hot our hands are and that happened once and I'm not going to name the company but they made a touch screen that was out of um, temperature sensitivity (laughs) and they had an all male engineering team and they only tested it on themselves and anyway, 50% of the population couldn't use it. Just
3: saying. And that's why we need <laughs> representation. <laughs> um, and so it's
2: in, you know, things like your smartphone that you're actually touching. And you may think, oh, it's a big slab of glass and it's magic, but it's not. It's not. Otherwise. So,
3: why is it? So,
1: I was fascinated. I, I, um, I don't th- I don't buy many phones I I, I, may, I keep them until they absolutely stop working mm-hmm. and I have broken the screen on the SMO, and you you know on the phone and you get this like, that little spider web of things mm-hmm. and it's a touch screen still and I was fascinated
2: mm-hmm. by yeah, that because the glass doesn't matter the glass is just a small part of it what actually matters when you're touching it are these nano eyes that you can't see
3: okay phones right susie I am actually going to pick up on the titanium dioxide stuff Mm -hmm. because that was my area of research. And actually the self-cleaning glass was something that my PI, um, Professor Ivan Parkin at UCL, um, helped to create with Pilkington glass. So it's an incredible thing. The self-cleaning glass is one thing. It does mean that you're not having people kind of hanging off the shard, for example, Mm -hmm. cleaning the windows. And it's... Although I think it was incredible. designed so you could do that. Oh, yes. Because a, yeah. a colleague,
1: someone I worked with, was the the rope consultant on how you were going to get people from the top of the jar down to clean the yeah. windows.
3: Um, but better if but you don't have But what you won't it. find is the same kind of technology in the Burj Khalifa, for example, because the cell which cleaning property. Which is a
1: very, very tall
3: building. Which, is it, it still the tallest building in the world? I think it is, although I think sure there's a building record. next door that's okay. rapidly catching up. Um and so but it's like five hundred meters tall, or so five hundred yeah, like meters, like kind meters of, or something. I think close to a yeah. kilometer or something. Yeah. In, at the Burj Khalifa, you know, it's a ridiculous height. Um, but you won't see the self-cleaning glass there because you need the water as well as a tiny portion of UV that's in the sunlight that so hits this material. So how does the material. self-cleaning glass work? What's so it's got a, a nano layer of titanium dioxide again titanium dioxide is interesting because, as it is, um, the kind of electronic properties that you need to excite it effectively, because it's a semiconductor, falls within the ultraviolet range of light. So you can use about 2% of sunlight that hits it to activate it. And when you do that, you're creating, again, these charged species on the surface of the glass. And it does a couple of things. So
1: these are not animals. These are atoms or molecules they, that have lost oh, an electron or two.
3: Exactly, yes. So actually, usually kind of gained and they've left behind, you know, a sort of a hole, a, a positive hole. So you've got these negatively charged um, creations. And what happens is there's a sort of two-way process of this self-cleaning action and the first is you charge the surface and these charged particles can start to break down some of the organic matter that's landed on that surface but the second way they do it is that they start to make the glass super hydrophilic so when rain lands on it rather than creating a kind of flat dome of a raindrop on this surface it actually spreads out very very flat because the surface is super hydrophilic so it really loves water so water spreads across it and as these water droplets join up they effectively make a continual sheet, which runs off this surface, cleaning away the broken down organic matter that the that, that So, the, the whole thing is a, a sort of
1: foun- uh, fountain, like a waterfall almost. A very it's thin, not, yeah, very, not very quite thin layer. It's as dramatic as
3: that. I mean, well, but with it's the rain a that we've had today, flow, yeah. <laughs> not far off. But absolutely. And so, that's how it manages to actually keep these, these windows clean. And so, the same kind of action, the same mechanism, we call it photocatalysis, which is the speeding up of a reaction in the presence of light, can be applied to a range of different things. So my um, my water splitting was actually based on the same kind of mechanism. Another area that we were working on, which I really love, again, using titanium dioxide, was to create antimicrobial coatings. So you can coat everything in a hospital um, with this stuff. And as long as you have the right kind of light shining on it, it can start to break down a lot of these kind of superbugs like MRSA potentially. But the problem is, because titanium dioxide is only using a couple of percent of the sunlight, it's not going to really be very efficient so by introducing a whole new range of impurities in the form of other nanoparticles like gold and silver you can start to tweak the electronic properties so actually you need a slightly lower energy of light to excite this material which means that you're actually then utilising a greater proportion of for example the solar spectrum if you had these out in the sun. So the benefit so the benefit the
1: reason this, this is nanotechnology and not just titanium paint mm-hmm. is that first of all
3: you only need a very thin layer so you're not wasting extra material. Also that when it's that thing you basically can't see it. You can't see it, so you have the fact that you can apply it and it is invisible, so if you had this on a pane of glass, of course you would be able to see right through it. But actually... On this nano scale, things work in a slightly different way. As soon as you start to scale that up, you start to lose the kind of deliciousness of the quantum realm. So things that would work on that very can we we just retain
1: that title, the deliciousness of the quantum realm. You heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. Can we do a show with that title anyway? Yeah, right. Technical term, shouldn't we?
3: Um, Go on. So as soon as you start to scale up, um, as you tend towards the macro scale, you start to lose these properties. I mean, the classic example of course is graphene versus graphite mm-hmm. so you can have very ordered graphite which is many many layers of this sort of two-dimensional graphene and it will retain some of those properties but it then starts to lose its flexibility it starts to become brittle it starts to be less good at conducting heat and electricity because you have all these layers kind so of so it's the blingling. same stuff mm. exactly and just the lay and well, that yes. takes
1: away some of these exactly. additional
3: the exactly, bit, like... exciting bits of things, <laughs>
1: science that it does. Yeah. Okay,
2: and an easy way to think of that if you don't play with nanoparticles is to think <laughs> of stained glass windows. So stained glass windows show you how. Gold at different sizes Mm -hmm. is different colours. And so the red in stained glass window is actually nanoparticles of gold that look red when they're tiny. And as you scale them up, they go through different colours. And so things behave really differently than you would expect your gold bracelet to once you
3: start to scale it down. See, I love that you mentioned gold nanoparticles because, again, we've been looking so much to kind of nanotech in history. Mm -hmm. And there's some amazing artefacts, like the Lycurgus Cup, I think. It's Mm -hmm. in, where is it, the British Museum or something? And it changes colour depending on the light that's shining on it. And it's because it's embedded with these gold nanoparticles. And so depending on the light shining on it, it will so reflect different colours. So how anyone making colors. gold nanoparticles when Oh, that there's was all made. kinds of things that people used to be doing. You could do... I mean, I, they had better solution chemistry, I think, back in the day. Yeah. They were far more inventive. But even things like... Um, that Damascus steel, which is almost like, you know, good old valyrian steel. They've done tests on that and they've showcased that all well, those tiny nano nanoparticles, usually of kind of carbon nanotubes and buckyballs, bits of soot, and they think it's because they used to cast these on top of a very smoky, kind of chocolatey fire, and all of these tiny particles of carbon that are really, really low density but incredibly strong have been embedded into this steel, and that's what's given it, n- not to intentionally use a pun but the edge over other swords because there's a, less, so there's a lesson in there though isn't it because
1: if if the you know and candles are a classic example mm-hmm. that you find tiny diamonds in them as well and, mm-hmm. and bookie ball, all these things balls, and yeah. bookie balls are very exciting little spherical arrangements of carbon atoms that yeah. look too good to be true frankly but and then that leads on to tubes and other things but the point <laughs> is they that is what you get in the flame of a candle and so if it's been around knocking around something that's in the British Mm -hmm. Museum for 500 years, that suggests that exactly the point you were making, Michelle, Mm -hmm. that nano by itself is not actually... That's the interesting new. bit.
2: Yeah. So car tyres used to be white. First ever cars, car tyres were white. Yeah. And then they took the soot, the equivalent. Mm-hmm. They were looking for something to sell on this sweeping thing that they were <laughs> trying to get rid of, and they put it into car tyres. And that's why your car tyres are black. Number one, they look nicer. But number two, they don't get these hot spots that when cars were in the sun were going to get. which meant So there's, there's none of taken everywhere. And some of it has just been... Sweeping up in a in a you know place that made a lot of sort and being like how can we sell this stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so cars were originally white and yeah now they're black. It it's is. I, I was uh, playing with a,
1: a very good thermal camera at the weekend at a car show, and what's fascinating about that is that. We are so used to tires looking black, but when you look on the thermal camera, they're the only bit that's white, yeah because they're warmer than the rest of the car, yeah. especially mm-hmm. on an electric vehicle yeah. um okay, so plenty of plenty of interesting stuff about um nanotechnology let's move move on a little bit oh yeah, so, Michelle, you had a small rant about the war on plastic.
2: Oh, I'm um, always renting. I know. So look, as a materials engineer... Keep it, sh- keep it short. Run. It's a small rent. <laughs> I, I have been travelling around different places and I have noticed... So New Zealand have just banned single-use plastic bags. Our government have decided that that's what we're going to do. I'm like, yay. And I said, well, what's our alternative? And they said, oh, well, we don't have one, but we're just going to stop people using their single-use plastic bags. And I was like, great, but unless you've got another option that's better, we're just actually banning something because we feel like it's bad because there are pictures of turtles that make us very sad, which is really important. But what we don't have is a solution for you. And a lot of the solutions people are taking are worse for the environment from a carbon footprint point of view. And so this whole ban on plastic things, I think, is not the mature conversation we need to have about an amazing material. Now, single-use plastics are awful. We all know that, unless you're in the medical industry where they're vital. But I think Giving plastics a bad name is really dangerous because I'm seeing lots of schools be plastic free. My school is plastic free. And these parents are running around going, cool, well, what do we need now? We're going to get a metal flask and we're going to, you know, put all these resources into these things. And I go to the teachers and said, oh, well, why are you banning plastics? And they're like, well, because they're bad. And I'm like, why? They're like, we don't know, but we read it on Facebook. And therefore, our school now has a ban on plastics policy. And
1: So, like, a, you, no, no plastic anything? No
2: plastic anything. That's quite, that, that is, I've that's been quite to strange. three London schools since I've been here who are plastic free. And I'm like, so what are you? And I look at what the kids are bringing in and they're these huge metal heavy mm-hmm. boxes and flasks. And I'm like... But
1: the game here is if you have
2: one metal box...
1: First of all, you have less that's going into landfill. Like Mm -hmm. I mean I so I have a metal box. Yeah. And I don't but I think that the point that the point that I think is important is this this nasty plastics thing. So I bought something that was um it might have been the metal box, actually a little (laughs) tin. And it came and it said, free of nasty plastics. And I was like, I'm on the point of sending it back to you because you said that. Like I absolutely agree. Like I my dad was a polymer technologist and I have been on the not overusing plastics thing Mm -hmm. since i was five years old right and um so so i have been thinking about this for a long 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 time but it annoys the hell out of me that there is a demonization of a category and I think you're right yeah. that the there is that, and I think it's it's a starting like all of these things it's a place to start
2: totally. but then you start to yeah. actually have to have a but discussion. But we have a generation of children who now think plastics are bad and I think the danger is that they don't know what a plastic is their mm-hmm. teachers don't know a plastic. We don't do teacher yeah. training on polymer chemistry you ask them to look at the recycle number and they say oh it's recyclable because it's got a triangle not and the number inside mm-hmm. says whether it's polypropylene or polyethylene. But I would defend I mean there is so much Plastic packaging that is
1: completely unnecessary. Totally agree. That I think that you can go a long, 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 absolutely. long, long way.
2: Totally agree. Like
1: before, you have to get really get into the subtleties because the problem mm. is so obvious and so big. But I do, I, I, I sort of take your like that, that distrust, <laughs> the sort of scientist yeah. caveat hat that goes, you know, let's yes, not ban but, the whole thing. Let's see, have like, educational, have a, we'll yes,
3: conversations absolutely. about it. Absolutely. I have a similar rant against electric cars yeah. because of the fact that. For a start, some of the components are actually far more polluting in in the creation of electric cars. But also, great that we're going electric instead of, you know, petrol-driven cars. But nobody really thinks about where the electricity is coming from. And until we're actually sourcing the majority of our electricity from renewable sources, which the UK seem to be making, you know, good progress on at the moment. I'm I'm just
2: going to do a little New Zealand. We're like... 90%.
3: 90%. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, you've got landscape and stuff. Nice. You didn't <laughs> no. have a North Sea oil industry. No, we did
2: <laughs> But I agree. And cobalt is really interesting because yeah, you can pretty much only mine it in a certain country that we know has child labour right, issues. Exactly. We know that people are dying. There, are, there is a yeah. lot of
1: work on cobalt-free batteries. I mean, yeah. there is a huge industry. And I've yeah. interviewed some of the places where, you know, WMG and uh, near Birmingham, for example, who are like, that is their major focus. It's, yeah. it's and how it's do we... But it's these conversations we need to
3: have because Absolutely. it's like electric cars are the saviour. And I'm like, Whoa. thank you. Exactly. And now we've got this. I've got to basically sell my car because it's too polluting anyway. And I'll be heavily taxed on it if I try and use it any time after next year. But the point is, you know, I'm kind of loath to get an electric car as well because I'm thinking, well, it's not the solution. And again, it's a thing that is proposed by people. And you think, well, yes, it's one step towards, but we need to kind of, I think, it's part of this bigger conversation of just trying to build confidence in people to ask these sort of critical questions. Of okay, but so I'm actually where surprised. Is that I'm surprised
1: the electric vehicles didn't come along sooner because of the local air pollution issue.
3: Mm. Because whatever
1: you think, because I don't understand why mm. air pollution wasn't where the climate change debate was 15 years ago. Yeah. Because whatever you think about anything else, no one wants to be breathing in exhaust, especially Absolutely. with the research coming along now about part. Of, you know what that's doing to you as well as the mm-hmm. microplastics, which is a lot clearer. Um, but but there is a large argument for however, wherever your energy sources have it in one place where you stand a yeah. chance of dealing with it rather than a might, you know, I'm a cyclist in London, I cycle everywhere. Ooh. And um, I can't wait for a world of electric yeah. cars mm-hmm. because I am fed up sure. of breathing and exhaust and I know that yeah. cyclists so there's research at King's College London which where they've got very so not the pollution monitors that you buy you know the sort of cheap ones that don't really do anything the ones that cost £20,000 research grade the cyclists are actually the least polluted people on the road it's the taxi drivers uh, who were the most because they're sitting in a car mm, with course. an air intake wow. trapped in mm. this thing there's no ventilation so as a cyclist I'm less polluted than anyone else in London and I'm still had enough
3: of it yeah. so yeah. i like roll up the electric vehicles because I'm just fed up of this totally I agree with that I just I think there are kind of other questions that I I wish people would would think about that I I think think they're a step forward but they're not the solution they are a bigger
2: but it's that bigger conversation and the
3: reason why Susie and I do what we do and you
2: Helen which is how do you break down Complex scientific conversations with the public, who right now are getting their information from a meme on Facebook Mm -hmm. and then making a a decision about it. Yeah, and it's really hard because science is really complex, and we don't we don't say firmly yes or no. This is we say we think that. Yeah, and the public want a yes or no answer. What is the best? How do we just do that? And so we'll ban plastics, or we'll all go to electric vehicles. And actually,
1: well, that's because life's life's
2: complicated. And the difficulty we've got is not that people are stupid;
1: it's that life's complicated. Yep.
3: And and science I don't think, is complicated. People, I don't think it's, it hits the fault of the people at all. I think there's the number of adults mostly that I think I speak to and I just feel so frustrated and quite sad because there is this often a kind of, not even a distrust, but a dislike, an active dislike of science or I didn't like that in school or it was really difficult in school, a real disengagement with science. And I think a lot of it is... Also, that people don't want to feel stupid and so they don't ask questions. But in anything else, we would. I wouldn't feel, I mean, I hardly know anything about anything, but I, I'm constantly asking questions because I want to know and I want to know. I learn. had a conversation with a, a
1: friend of mine years and years ago now, and he was an architect an undergraduate at university. And we, he, I worked around London, and he kept talking about these buildings. And I would say, I think that's horrible. And, he, you know, <laughs> all architects think it's the most wonderful thing. And I said, why, why, why are we having a conversation about architecture? We never have conversations about science. And he said, It's because in architecture, no one's right or wrong. So everyone mm-hmm can have an opinion but in science I can say and actually his son now he's now got a seven-year-old son who told me all about the moon and something about the moon and it wasn't right and like, <laughs> he, had, his, this kid was doing amazingly well and he finally got to something the seven-year-old that he got wrong and I, went, I felt quite relieved okay well I don't think it was quite like that but the point was there's a point it feels like I think for people who don't engage in science there is a point where very you make yourself very vulnerable yeah because you say you're sitting there waiting to be squashed. And now, we haven't got too long left. I did want to... It's related to this. I did want to move on to it. Um, Michelle, I was looking at your website on... There was a particular project about... Um, that you did with Maori communities mm. about science. And they're sort of, in, you know, having a two-way bilingual conversation about um, their view of the world and the scientific view of the world. And I would really like to just dig into that a little bit because I think this is one of the ways to address that problem right is that you listen and you understand and you respect tell us a little bit about that project
2: yeah, so having been in academia for a while and not seeing the diversity that I would like to see, I thought about, well, how do we do research into where the challenge is? And some of the challenges that there are whole communities of people who don't feel engaged with what I'm going to call Western science, the way we take a Petri dish and we do a test tube. And yet they've probably been scientists their whole life. And we've got indigenous populations around the world who know how the world works. They know when to plant their crops. They know how to do this. And we've sort of dismissed it with Western science, saying, oh, no, it's good. We'll just get a test tube and we'll it tell you this. And so I've become really interested in indigenous um, science and how we communicate and learn from indigenous populations. So living in New Zealand, um, Maori people um, are incredible and they have this thing called Mataranga Maori, which is basically the way that you learn from the earth and the world. And we have a real challenge in New Zealand that our Maori populations are not engaging with science, they're not studying it at school, they're not going to university. And I was like, well, how do we have conversations that are two way around this? And so we've created this this beautiful piece um, and we're expanding it which is all about how do you get the two Matarang Māori and western science to learn from each other and then create this beautiful thing so one of the things that we do is we present science through maori myths and legends because there are incredible stories in maori mythology that teach all about science and where things come from so there's this beautiful goddess she's called mahuika she's the goddess of fire in maori mythology And Maui, which if you've ever seen Moana, is the cheeky one, he went up to her and he stole her fire. She used to keep it on her fingernails. She had five fingernails of fire. And he stole it and he put it into the trees and they are the trees that, make the best fire for firewood. And so is this beautiful story. And so we present this where we do a hand-on fire trick, which everybody knows you can do with methane bubbles or any flammable gas. And we get the kids to see the mythology come to life. And then we discuss the fire triangle and firewood and all the things that we would teach in school, but in a way that says we hear your stories and we want to embrace your stories and build these things together. And um, it's been incredibly powerful and humbling to have these conversations. And I wish we had them more because I think what happens sometimes is the white saviors come in and go, we're going to save you, we're going to teach you our science and you're going to be fixed. And they're like, we've got it. Like, we're good. Like, how about we just sit down and have a conversation about how we can teach you about what we've been doing since the beginning of our ancestors around how you don't just test one thing, but everything is connected. And so if you look at the bigger ecosystem Actually, you'll see that by touching this thing over here, you're affecting something downstream over it there. Whereas a lot of scientists tend to just focus very specifically on their little piece and don't think about how it carries through. So that has been amazing. We've just done something very similar in Fiji, working with them squatter settlement girls so these girls to have no permanent home um, and sort of developing the similar thing there to help empower them to be the smartest in their communities and their villages so
1: it's interesting because it makes me you know the, the thing we think about you know those communities have a very strong sense of self and they have an identity which is constructed through stories um, and actually that is one thing in the western world that we don't have apart from these colonial myths yeah about you know the white settler going out, usually stealing treasure from someone, we actually don't have a sense of identity. And actually, it's interesting because you can't imagine doing that in the UK because there isn't a culture that people talk about. There's something so I paddle mm-hmm. outrigger canoes, um, mm-hmm. mostly with Hawaiians, and they talk about their culture all the time. They talk about their sense of family. And actually we don't have, so it's almost there's nothing to hook onto in the Western mm-hmm. world. It's, a,
2: it's an absence rather than the presence. But we are into stories. And if you think about how we teach science and then we read stories to people, we don't connect the two. And we've always passed down knowledge through storytelling. And so one of the things that I'm working on now is how do we tell stories, not just with our indis- indigenous population, who are teaching us so much about storytelling. But here in the UK, how do we tie our stories to our science and maybe try and deliver science in a way that's a little bit more appealing, maybe a little bit more welcoming, because we've always separated English and science. Those are two separate things, and you're either good at one or good at the other, but they're all related.
1: Um, what's the name of your project? Where can people find out a little bit more about that?
2: Uh, so our Māori project is called Mata Toa, which is the Māori world, for a word for discoverer. Um, so you can look up Martha Tower, or just look up Nanogirl Labs and all of our easier info. to spell slightly. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: okay, so uh, we I think there's a lot to talk about there, but we have got to the end of our half hour slot. So. Uh, Yes, if you would like to support the Cosmic Shambles Network, you can do that for as little as $1 a month on Patreon. Uh, That's on patreon.com slash slash bookshambles. You know, I cannot get through um, (laughs) web addresses. Patreon.com slash bookshambles. Um, And if you support Cosmic Shambles, uh, there are extended episodes and behind the scenes, not behind the scones. It's definitely behind the scenes. I'm going to make some scones just so it's true. Uh, And other goodies. Uh, So there's lots of stuff if you support the Cosmic Shambles Network. But even if you don't, there is still cosmicshambles.com where there are blogs and videos and podcasts and there's lots of information about the live events all sorts of interesting nuggets on there and because we are always doing live shows we've got a few coming up it's festival season so there's lots on the go Uh, we'll be at Latitude and the Blue Dot Festivals and Robin, once he has returned from the current leg of his tour will be at the Soho Theatre in July and he will be on tour in November so there's loads to get involved with Um, do look up all of that at Cosmicshambles.com and we'll see you next time
0: yes, thank you very much for listening. Do check out cosmicshambles.com and patreon.com slash bookshambles for all of our goings on. Remember, Book Shambles is back this Thursday with Robin and Josie, and we'll be back next week with another new episode of Science Shambles as well, which if I'm not mistaken, will be the episode we recorded at our sold out event at the RI recently with Helen and Susie Gage and Lucy Green and Linda Cremonisi. Until then, have a great week. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.